morning, church. 25 years ago this month, 25 years ago this month, I was hired as a youth minister at this church. A quarter of a century. And I think it was maybe the first five years was a testing period before I got up here on a Sunday morning. I preached, I guess, when we had Senior Sunday. But the first time I preached, and mind you, when you're 22 at hiring, and you're following Lanny Henniger, who was the pulpit minister at that time, you kind of go on his lead. And he wrote out all of his sermons, so I wrote out all of my sermon, all 45 minutes of my sermon. And the first person I encountered on the steps, because Lanny always met the congregants at the back of the church on Sunday morning, the first, the very first person I met looked me in the eye, stuck his hand out, said, get a watch, and walked down the steps. Words are powerful. And today we're talking about words. We know all of these lines. Actions speak louder than words. Talk is a man is only as good as his sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. They compel us, they move us, they bind us, they can galvanize a nation into action. Do you remember William Travis? What he wrote, we didn't hear him say it, but what he wrote at the end of his letter as he was asking for help at the Alamo, victory or death. FDR said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Powerful words. Kennedy, think not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. We hold people accountable for the words that come out of their mouths. Really, really good, promising, hopeful, inspiring words and the gaffes the stupidity, the silly things, we hold them accountable. Like Bush in 88, read my lips, no new taxes. Remember that? Or even this past, was it Thursday? Trump said the American patriots seized the airports, which is just funny when you think about it. The teleprompter had some errors as I understand it. I could, I could inspire you with literature, poetry, read all kinds of wonderful words for you this morning, but I want to hone in on a handful of thoughts. God's people have always believed words are powerful. In fact, we look in the text and it says in the very beginning, God spoke creation into existence, that into the void, he said, let there be light. And then it was let there be and let there be and let there be God's words defining and constructing the world we inhabit. And we, made in his image, also speak words that create and form. We model what he has done. He establishes order, gives understanding with words. We establish order and give understanding with words. So we say things like this. I'm sorry. We hopefully smooth something over. Or we say, you first. Or we say, will it hurt? We ask, well, did he make it through the night? Or I forgive you. Strong words. We see in Colossians 3.17, it says, Whatever you do in word and deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
whatever you do in word or deed. I don't know if there's anyone on the planet that does all of their whatevers in the name of Jesus. There are things that they fail to do. There's times when we don't speak, when we need to speak. And there's times when we overspeak or overstate things or we say things the wrong way. We fall short. So what do we do? I'm going to look specifically at a few things about the power of words, then the power of silence to teach us how to speak, and then maybe some practices that help. We're not debating that words have power. We start when a woman conceives a baby. We start talking before they even exist on the planet. We're talking to the baby. We're that baby's mind and all of its understanding of the world being formed by principally the voice of the mother and the voice of the father. So we start young, and when they land, I mean, it's like full on, right? We're educating, we're instructing, we're b-b-bottle and m-m-milk. And by the age of, they say, around two years, they have 200 words. And by the time they're three years old, they have 3,000 words, and by the time a person goes on to college at 18, they, on average, say the vocabulary of maybe 80,000 words has been put in here and comes out here, right? So we believe that they're incredibly powerful. It's how we live our lives, by our words. I had this, this memory of our girls learning how to feed themselves, how to walk and talk. I've got four daughters. Three of them are here today. And I just remember these comments like, you can do it. Come on, keep going. I mean, all these little prompts. And it reminded me of, um, it reminded me of that, that passage in Genesis where a man, Adam, is given his first instruction. And it was using his mouth. The very first thing he did that we have record of was naming the animals using his mouth. There's something really significant about that. Can you picture God the Father, Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, all of them gathered together? There is this creature, man, that they've made, and they invite him into defining creation, and he starts to give them names. And Genesis 2 says, whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. So here are some of the English translation of maybe what might have been Aramaic or Hebrew or some other language way back. The spiny lump sucker. That's a creature. Exists. The tasseled wabigong. That's a shark, believe it or not. The screaming hairy armadillo, which sounds kind of like Adam may have gotten tired and it's like it's screaming and it's hairy and it's an armadillo. So that's what it is. These are real names of animals. Wildebeest, hippopotamus, the red-lipped batfish, the wonderpus photogenicus. I mean, if I'm going to be an animal, give me that name. That's awesome. The wonderpus photogenicus. So he names creatures. But the first words we have of Adam are his recognition and affirmation of his partner Eve. He says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, an affirmation and recognition of the goodness of this creature that's come to him, a gift from God. Could there be instruction for us on how we use our mouths that the first words recorded of man were an 
affirmation and recognition, almost a blessing. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. There's something powerful there. And the next time he opens his mouth, he says, I was hiding and afraid because he had committed sin. Starts making excuses. He says, the woman gave me fruit to, fruit to eat. And then Cain, their, their children, the first siblings, Cain's first words in Scripture come out to a field. I've got something to show you, Abel. Deception. And then this is how we use. when I was here. I think you could be the next Billy Graham. <laughs> because my mom is my greatest fan, right? Who doesn't need someone who's president of their fan club? If you're a parent, you know that's one of the principal roles you hold is to be the president of your kid's fan club, right? So words, harsh words stir up anger, says Proverbs 15.1. Hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, Proverbs 11. Gossip is spread by wicked people. They stir up trouble and break friendships, Proverbs 16. So what do we do if our mouths giving us trouble? Because they do give us trouble. We fall on the gospel, which is we are all more wicked than we dare imagine. That's the truth, even our mouths. But we are more loved and we could ever dare hope through Christ. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Can we turn off all the empty chatter? We can. We can turn off all the empty chatter. Here are some ideas. So that's the power of words. Let's look now for a moment, the necessity of silence to understand their power even more. We can enter silence again. Can you imagine 150 years ago there, were, there was no way to communicate with anyone but who was in your wagon or who was on the horse next to you or who was on the road you're walking with. And you had no knowledge of anything happening anywhere in the globe except what was happening in your small town. That's all you knew, and it's really all you cared about because those are the people that you deal with every day. So I was, walk, I was with my girls. We were driving back from a weekend trip to Dallas-Fort Worth, and I was trying to help them imagine what it was like to drive from Dallas to Houston or to ride from Dallas to Houston 125, 150 years ago on a four to five day journey where there's nothing but yourselves to entertain you. Maybe an animal, maybe a dog, maybe, a, I don't know, a bird. But there would only be the sounds of silence and the human voices and the animals snorting pulling the wagon, that would create a different kind of mind, a different kind of heart, and different ears, if that's the way you understood time and the passage of time. They didn't really get it, and neither do I. 
because we don't live 125, 150 years ago. I can't imagine what it would have been like. In this age of unending hurry and noise, we must literally choose to pursue quiet. We have to define it. There was this passage, Henry David Thoreau, you familiar with Thoreau, and he spent time in this cabin next to a a pond. Uh, He referred to the book, it's called Walden, and he said, Sometimes in a summer morning, having taken my accustomed bath, I sat in reverie amidst the pines and hickories and sumacs in an undisturbed solitude and stillness while the birds sang around or flitted noiseless through the house until by the sun falling in at my west window or the noise of some traveler's wagon on a distant highway, I was reminded of the lapse of time, and I grew in those seasons like corn in the night. They were far better than any work of the hands would have been. They were not mine. They were not time subtracted from my life, but so much over and above my allowance. That sounds rich, doesn't it? But it takes a decision to get alone, to find quiet, to listen. It takes a decision. So what might some of those opportunities be? I think of Jesus and the decisions he made, who... He held no reputation. In fact, he escaped fame as he could. And then when it was time, it was time. But he got away to the hills. He he separated himself into creation to visit with his father, to commune with the spirit. And so I I find it interesting. We hear this call in, in the book of Proverbs, the way wisdom is defined as something that was created before creation. Listen to, wis- listen to chapter 8 of the book of Proverbs. And I imagine Jesus there communing with wisdom, with the Father, with the Spirit. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, You know that passage in the book of Job? When Job has sat through the silence of God for most of the book, and God finally responds, and God asks Job, were you there, Job, when I told the water to stop? Were you there? It reminded me of that text. Then I, wisdom, verse 30, then I, wisdom, was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Now, I can nearly guarantee you this is the kind of message that's rummaging, murmuring in the background of Jesus' mind as he escapes the crowds. And he lands on a verse like this, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. I reckon we might delight more in mankind if we would get apart from mankind to just reflect on it. The miracle of humanity, the the tremendous gift of human beings, rejoicing in his whole world, delighting in mankind. I do wonder if we sought silence quiet, if we might learn that lesson, how to delight in mankind and not be looking for the flaws. I love what Dallas Willard said because our culture is so cynical, at least the media displays it that way. I really don't think our culture is as cynical as the media might say we are. 
think we're actually a people full of hope. I really do. But I like what Dallas Willard said, that cynicism is lazy. It takes effort to be hopeful. That's what God's people have always done. We've always been a people who possess hope because we have a God who loves us from the top to the bottom, from east to west. We can possess hope. We don't have to give in to all the cynicism. We don't. We don't. Not in our culture, not in our families, certainly not individually. Dallas Willard also went on to say that solitude and silence practiced wisely in allotted intervals can take the world off your back and forever release you from hurry and loneliness. So for the person who finds solitude rather easy, they would rather not associate with anyone. If you're a true introvert, people starve you, drain you, make you miserable. But, but that's the challenge. Is if you want to be like Jesus, you must find yourself amongst people. But for the person who feels like all they can do is be with people, because when anytime they get alone, they get really lonely and nervous and anxious, well, you might want to spend some time alone right? Because there's time for that too, and it's needed as we form, are formed into the likeness of Jesus. I'm convinced believers don't need more information. We live in the information age. Did you, I read in Forbes magazine, this was a 2017 article, and it said in the previous two years, 2015 to 2017, that if you took all the corpus of data that we have on the earth, 90% of what you're reviewing in that two-year window, 90% of the data and information on the planet was created in those two years. There's pause on that. 90% of the information, that's everything ever said in any book ever written, any paper ever published on the internet has been accumulated in the last two years or 20, 2015 to 27. In other words, this, this incredible spike in information, 500,000 posts per minute. This is 2017 on Facebook. 126 million emails per minute flying around the globe. 17 million texts per minute. Words, 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 words. Unbelievable. So what do we do? What do we do? We're inundated. It'd be helpful to figure out some ways. We don't need necessarily more information to follow Jesus more effectively. A couple of ideas. We've looked at the power of words. We've talked about the value of silence. And now a couple of ideas. I'd like to grow like corn in the night. But it takes finding quiet places. I don't know about you, but in my very busy household four children growing up, going in lots of different directions, a wonderfully busy wife. I go early, early in the morning, early, three, four o'clock, to find that solace or that time. And it's not with the incredible regularity. I do it when I can, when I seem to find the time. But that's a funny notion about time, like we're finding it, isn't it? That we find time. We got to make time. I do wonder if the digital clock where it just tells us the exact time and it doesn't show us the hands that are moving in this passage of time, the future, the past, and then where you are currently, I do wonder if the digital clock is almost a, 
it's a, it's, a, it's a problem. It only tells us what's going on right now, the time right now. And it doesn't allow you to really think, oh, well, that was several days ago. In fact, there were Native Americans used to actually, they didn't know clocks. <laughs> when met, I cannot remember who the explorer was. I think it may have been Lewis and Clark, but one of those that they ran into, they were talking about time, passage of time. And they just pointed for the future, pointed backward for the past. Kind of refreshing. And if you're ever with children, children will refresh you because they could give a rip about your schedule. They could, they could care less about time. They, they just don't, it just, it's not even an issue to them, right? It's just not an issue. We might learn something from children that way. What if we drove in quiet? Turn off the radio, turn off the news. What if you started your day not grabbing for a device or turning on NPR or whatever you turn on, morning news. I'll tell you, last week I lost a big client. And um, when I say big client, I just mean like revenue for my business. And in the moments that immediately followed, it was as though I could feel the hand of fear pushed into my pocket and rummaging for change. And in that moment, these words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That, that, that prayer just kind of emanated, bubbled up. It's come from having tried to pray that every day for years. But it bubbled up in a moment when I was desperately in need of that assurance. And that hand just was yanked out of my pocket. I walked out my door, threw a Molotov cocktail behind me. I'm kidding, I didn't do that. But that's the way it feels sometimes, right? With work, I mean, that's the way it feels. Lose a big client, I hate it. I never liked him anyway. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But by grace, that prayer just bubbled to the surface in the silence of my office. The end of a long work day, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Practice. I love the practices that you've got going on here. Saying the Lord's Prayer. Saying the dox, singing the doxology. The Apostles' Creed. There are times when silence, when a word fitly spoken, isn't spoken. And that's bad news, right? If you grew up with a stoic, quiet father figure who never affirmed you in word, maybe by a glance, that has effect. That'll make a young man really, really eager and desiring to have approval, have that love, ha have that sense of, I'm capable, I'm capable, I can do this. So there's a time when silence is just the last thing that needs to happen. But there are many times for most of us who are inundated with the noise of our culture that it would be helpful. There's a time when silence is maybe the one thing that we celebrate here on, on Sundays, right? Have you thought about that? That the Lord's Supper is in essence bracketed by the silence of God. That Jesus said, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And there's no answer. 
there was an answer eventually. There was an answer. There was life that came again into this body where death is defeated. But when we gather at the table, we bring all of our silences, the silences of God that we wrestle with, answers we don't have, problems we can't seem to figure out. We bring all of that to the table. We lay those burdens in front of him because Jesus carried that burden for us. The word made flesh confronted by the silence of God. The book of Job, you know, that most of the book is his silence, is God's silence, and Job's chattering friends, his overly chatty friends who had answers for all of his struggles. I'm sure you've learned if you've grieved. Isn't it amazing how just someone's presence communicates help? They don't have to say the right thing. They don't have to have the words, but we want to have the words. Like my daughter didn't make a volleyball team yesterday or didn't make a team she thought she'd make, and yesterday I had no words. Just didn't have any. She's heartbroken and sad, and we just kind of stood there, being human, <laughs> being like Jesus, present in sorrow, faithful to one another in hardship. So, try this. Try finding six hours or 12 hours or 24 hours to be quiet. I mean, there are whole communities, this is a wild thought, whole communities where men and women enter, enter silence for years. They enter with a vow of silence. I can't imagine that. Because where people were defined by words, right? I love what Malcolm Muggeridge wrote in Something Beautiful for God. He was reflecting on the life of Mother Teresa. He said, the Christian religion is an experience rather than a conclusion, a way of life rather than an ideology, grasped through the imagination rather than understood through the mind, belonging to the realm of the spirit rather than intellectual perception, reaching quite beyond the dimension of words and ideas. As St. Augustine found on that wonderful occasion, shortly before his mother died, when they were carried together to somewhere near the very presence of God. It was then, upon returning, that they found words as clumsy instruments as a surgeon might find a hacksaw or an artist a house painter's brush. Sometimes it's just presence. It's just presence with one another. You know, I, I believe this charge that I mentioned early in the message that we give children, you can do it. You can do it. It's the same charge that God gives his people today. I think maybe if we will lean heavily and hard on the grace and mercy of God through Christ, that that charge in Colossians 3.17 where it says, Every blessed thing, all words and deeds in the name of the Lord Jesus. I believe if we will but understand the power of the word, understand the necessity of silence to really value it and practice all of these things, even with failure, I have a hunch that upon all of these attempts to follow Jesus, to hear him speak, to speak on his behalf, I have a hunch that if we will make that effort, maybe, just maybe, we'll hear from God himself. And you know what I think he might say? You can do it. 
through Christ and because of his love. 